You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, welcome, friends. Welcome to First Christian Albuquerque. We're delighted to get to worship God with you. And that delight is made all the more pleasurable by your presence here in this place and wherever you are joining us online. We're, we're welcoming you and glad that you're here. You know, in recent weeks, I've been thinking a lot about what we do with people whose beliefs differ from our own. Have you ever wrestled with that? I'm not, I'm not talking necessarily about anything other than different beliefs, belief system, religious system. People who may not be Christian, or maybe they're a different kind of Christian than we are. Someone from the world religion. Someone from an Eastern religion. Maybe even someone from a religion that might be more self-directed. Chosen by them. Collected together from different places. What do we do with these people? Well, so a lawyer, a geologist, a preacher, and a uh, computer scientist all go on a hike. Now you think this is a joke. This happened yesterday, actually. A group of people uh, went together on a hike with Don and I up La Luz, and these are all folks that are, they're not Christian. In fact, Christianity might be in their past. Uh, Some of them believers in God, but very much see that as a part of their past life. And I was pretty excited about this, for people to let a weirdo in, me, a preacher. I mean, think about that. That's pretty impressive for folks to want to be around a preacher. I I don't even know if I'd want to go on a hike with a preacher. But it was delightful to have conversations with folks who were real in what they stood for and thinking and wrestling with what life looks like. Now, for you, it might terrify you to think about being around someone who believes differently than you. And you might say, oh, no, no, not, not me. Well, are you... Aren't we sometimes threatened by those who think and see and believe differently than we do? Do sometimes our competitive juices come out where we're going to try to prove or convince or challenge or bring them to a particular place? I don't know. I mean, sometimes we come from that competitive spirit. Sometimes we just do nothing, right? We realize we're in kind of an uncomfortable situation, and so we just want to leave. We just want to get out of that conversation. Say nothing. And so from fear, we just sit quietly. Maybe equally terrifying are those that are ready to jump in with both feet, to go over the top, to promote things very legalistically, very straightforwardly, very black and white. Or maybe we find ourselves just stewing. You know, thinking about, oh, what should have been said? What should have been done? And so, I just want us to think and ask today how we deal with people who are different in belief from us. Different in practice from us. And of course, there are a lot of obvious things that we would want to improve our own knowledge, right? We would want to increase our own study, our own awareness of the things that we believe and why we believe what we believe. We would want to do those things, to become more curious, more devoted to prayer, 
for our own insight and for those that we come in contact with. We might even seek the wisdom of some leader, someone who's trained in the particular issue or topic that we're wondering about. It's just like we would do with almost anything. We'd want to raise our level of insight and understanding. Like whenever we find out about cancer being in the family. Or when we realize we probably need to choose a new career in life. Or when we're looking to move into a new neighborhood and we want to know something more about that neighborhood or about a product that we want to buy. We want to improve. Well, today, I don't want to give you a full answer necessarily to this question of what we're to do with people who differ from us. Instead, I want to tell you a story, a story of one person who interacts with another person of different belief and what happens, how that uh, transpires as two people from two different ethnicities, two different backgrounds come together and, and look at life together. Well. This book of Exodus that we've been exploring is an amazing one, isn't it? Amazing story of God's wonders, of the things that God has done and how he has acted in the world, specifically to form this group of Israelites, to form their identity as a people. And they point back to this book as one that shapes them and gives them identity. The God who delivers them, who brings them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And there's all kinds of wonderful stories in how they deal with one another during a time and a season when it felt like God forgot. Kind of a season of fear where they were not getting the promises answered that they thought they would get. These promises back to Abraham where God promised that Abraham would, would have a child and, well, he, he did have a child, but he also promised for land and to be a blessing to all the nation. And, and where is that? As an enslaved people for hundreds and hundreds of years feel like God has forgotten them. Where are all the blessings? Where is the land? And so we come to our story today. If you're able to, let's stand for a reading of God's Word from Exodus chapter 18. And I'm going to start in verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down, and he kissed him. And each asked about the other's welfare. And they went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh, the Lord, had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had beset them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced for all that the good that the Lord, Yahweh, had done to to Israel in delivering them from the Egyptians. Then Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he delivered the people from the Egyptians when they dealt arrogantly with them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came together with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, in the presence of God. The next day, Moses sat as judge for the people, while the people stood around him from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said to Moses, What is this that you're doing for the people 
Why do you sit alone while the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes and the instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and those people that are with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I'll give you a counsel, and God be with you. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions, and make known to them the way that they are to go, and all the things that they are to do. You are to also look for able men among the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate dishonest gain, and set such men over them as officers, over hundreds, over thousands, over fifties, over tens. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, in this story, we get a family celebration. Families being reunited, coming together in something of a reunion. And so we get the the swapping of stories, the sharing of food, all of this wonderful, wonderful gathering of families. And we get Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who comes. And he's a priest, much like Moses is a priest. Longer than Moses has been one going between the people and God, in fact. Jethro is a priest of Midian. Now I want you to pay close attention to that because he's a priest over a region, not a priest of a deity. It's very unlikely that he is a priest of Yahweh. In fact, he is another kind of priest, a priest over this region, yet he's in the same business as Moses. And this whole notion of him not being a priest of Yahweh is what makes this story the most intriguing for me. And I really want to see what happens. Well, a little bit of background is in order here. As we look at these families interact with one another, uh, it's a time when families from very different religious backgrounds come together. Now that can be explosive, right? It's probably never happened to you. You've probably never had a family disagreement. Well, probably over anything. But certainly not over religion, right? Well... It can be a disaster, but the story that I'm telling you today is actually one that's got a good result, so it's worth our paying attention to, to see how families come together and handle differences of how they believe. So what is a priest of Midian? Well, we got to think about who these Midianites are. This is actually some long-lost family members, in a way. Kind of a a branch of the family that's been forgotten for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You might remember a guy named Abraham that I've already mentioned, who is uh, the, the father of the Israelite people. After his wife Sarah died, he married a woman named Keturah. And through Keturah, he gave birth to children that became the Midianites. But they went their separate ways. They had different practices. The Midianites went in a different direction entirely. In fact, this is a proto-Arabic group, caravanning people, a trading people, 
And, and historians and scholars can trace the Arabic language back to this group of people. Okay? So they're different. Different from one another. And they get reunited. Moses not only gets to see his father-in-law again, but he gets to see his wife, Sephora, and their children. You might remember good Hebrews. They're often naming their kids in ways that mark the passing of time. So little Gershom, whose name means alien. That's not a foreign, you know, UFO kind of alien. But a stranger, a foreigner representative of how the people felt. And then we get Moses' other son, Eleazar, which means God is my help. God's my deliverer. Telling the story in a way about God delivering them from Egypt. So we get this family reunion with kissing and asking about how things are going and everyone's happy. But again, I have to tell you, they're from very different backgrounds. Moses has gone the way of Abram. He's followed the God of Abraham. He's also had an experience where he's been in the palace of Egypt, and he's learned about the gods of Egypt. Think about that. Moses' religious experience included learning all of those Egyptian gods. Gods that in the plagues appear. Let me give you an example of some of them. The Egyptian god Heket, which means the god of water. This particular goddess was attacked when the Nile was turned to blood, or when frogs came from the waters of the Nile. Or what about the god Geb? This goddess is the goddess of the earth. When Moses struck the earth and lice came from the earth. Or the god Nut, the sky god, from which hail and lightning, from which locusts came. All of these gods, and even the god Ra, the god of the sun, whenever darkness came across the land, they're all being attacked by Moses in the plagues. And so what I want us to watch and what I want us to notice in this story that we just read are three things. The, what Moses says, how Jethro responds, and what their relationship teaches us about interacting with one another. Now, if you look at those verses, if you see what happens, Moses comes in and after all these kisses and greetings and exchanging of food, he tells uh, Jethro, all that God has done. He tells the good, amazing stories of deliverance, of how they've come through these plagues, and how God's conquered the Egyptians, and the stories of the Red Sea. I mean, can you imagine being on the rug in that tent, and hearing from the lips of Moses these stories of the amazing and profound things that God has done? I would have loved to have been there, to witness this priest Moses speaking to another devout priest about what God has done. Now Jethro, as he took off in this other branch, he's a part of a long history, was most likely polytheistic. And so it would have been quite natural for him to take a statue of Yahweh and just add it to these other statues in his house. There's room in Jethro's tent for a lot of gods to be there. A shelf for many, many gods but I want you to pay close attention to what happens. What Moses does is he tells the good news about what God has done, and look at how Jethro responds. In verse 8, he rejoices in Yahweh, takes the personal name of God that had been given to Moses at Mount Sinai in the burning bush, and he uses it and rejoices in that God. Now, that might be worth circling in your Bible. There's several words that I might have you circle. The word rejoice in verse 8. But I'm not through. If you look down in verse 10, 
Jethro blesses Yahweh the Lord. He affirms the truth of Yahweh being a deliverer. Still not through. Look down in verse 10. Jethro says, I now see that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Wow. So this is a clearing of the tent. This is a focus upon one singular God and saying that this God is greater than all other gods. Now, I want you to pay attention to that because sometimes we miss it. Other gods existed. Whether or not they are evil gods or neutral gods or good gods, there are other powers that are out there. And, and today we might not give them the same names like I spouted off to you about Egyptian gods, but we might have them if we look at our actions Whenever we look at how we act in terms of greed, might be a God there. Or when we act for our own self-interest, is that not a God? Right? So there are lots of gods that are out there, but this is a God that is the greatest of all gods. And I'm not done with how Jethro responds. Look in verse 12. He brings whole burnt offerings, holocaust offerings, Offerings that are fully consumed. So this is an animal that's completely burned up. There is no benefit. It's a, a sign of complete devotion. And he also brings other sacrifices, which is good, because we may not realize it, but some of these gatherings are kind of like cookouts. They're like tailgating parties where you worship and honor God. And so it's good that you would have one that's not a whole burnt offering, where the meat could be shared. And this fellowship could ensue in the name of God. Well, maybe you're starting to see some things of how we can interact with people who are different from us. Well, there's one more part of this scene that I want you to see. We've seen Jethro's amazing response. We've seen the witnessing that Moses did about who Yahweh is and what Yahweh is about. But there's another scene that happens. Jethro hangs around and watches what Moses does for a living. He looks because they're doing the same type things. They're both priests. All day long, from dawn until sunset, Moses is deciding cases and settling problems between the people and answering questions about the law. All day long, he's the only one. And here comes Jethro with a bit of advice saying, what you're doing is not good. That doesn't work. It's too much for one person. Then he gives him some advice. Appoint some trustworthy men to be judges. Now we know he's using the word men. We know there are female judges as well, right? We can think of Deborah. So it's using this word men in a way like we do sometimes of all people. But appoint trustworthy people who are noted, verse 21, by the way that they fear God. They respect God. They honor God. And what you should do is take some of the routine decisions, some of the smaller decisions, and let these judges take care of them. And you, Moses, you take care of the bigger ones, the more complex ones, the more difficult ones. And you can see that in verse 22 and in verse 26. But the summary that I think is amazing from Jethro, this priest of Midian, comes in verse 19. You, Moses, should represent the people to God. Stand before God on their behalf. I love that. I mean, as a preacher's kid, as someone who's trained in ministry, as someone who's trained ministers, 
All the blessings that I've been given, I can't think of a better way to describe what a minister is to do but to stand before God and represent the people to God, to go on their behalf. Now, some churches, some ministers don't focus in on that task. They don't think about lifting up God being their primary responsibility. But here, we see the task of a senior minister of representing the people to God and representing them well to this God. Well, when I look at what happens in this story, I haven't pointed out yet what shocks me the most. Maybe you missed it. The shock is that Jethro, this priest of Midian, gives Moses advice. Moses has just taught him about monotheism. He's just explained to him about the proper way. And yet Jethro, who has wisdom and insight and knowledge, teaches Moses. Now, now let that sink in. Let it sink in deeply that Moses is willing to learn from an outsider. There's no power play move on Moses' part. There's no posturing to say that he's got all of the answers. There's a humble learning from someone who even comes from the outside. A recognition on Moses' part that all truth is God's truth. And we even see from Jethro a pointing to God being the center. There's not to be fear of outsiders. Well, I can tell you on my hike, I, I, I learned a lot. Whenever you pay attention to other people, they have a lot to offer you about geology or about how computer science works or what lawyers do to to parse words and to be laser-focused as they put things together. And yes, I got asked a number of questions too, but I was the benefactor. I was the one who was learning. And so what I want to do is summarize for us maybe some of the things that you've already picked up on from this amazing story in Exodus that we can use as we deal with people who are different from us, who might think differently than us, or even people that are in this room that think differently. First and foremost, you have to be ready to enter relationship with other people. To not be isolated in and of yourself. We can't be afraid of, of difficulties or differences of opinions about social issues or, or ethical issues. We can't be afraid of different ethnicities or people with different religious beliefs or even different understandings of sexuality. We have to be willing to engage. This kind of hospitality is something that we see clearly with Moses and Jethro. And I know they're family, but just because you're family doesn't mean that you always show that hospitality. Just in verse 7 where they offer the best wishes to one another. Do we do that with our own family? Do we wish and want what's best for another? I mean, that's a good thing to do to go into any discussion wanting what's best for that other person. Well, a second thing, not only just being willing to enter into those relationships, but being willing to point to the action of God. Not what you've done, not what your church has done, not some belief that you have, but point to the glory of God in your own life. That's what Moses did. He didn't sit down with Jethro and say, I'm going to prove to you scientifically how the Red Sea parted. (laughs) No, we didn't do that. He didn't say, Jethro, let me give you an apologetic statement about how these plagues are meant to be understood. 
And let me give you how this works out in the laboratory when God and I worked it up. Did he do that? No. He just told the story and gave credit to God. Do we do that with our own lives? Do we give credit on a regular basis to the God who gives us the job? To the God who helped us overcome the marriage difficulty? Do we honor God for the child that he's blessed us with and say that? Make, make the glories and the wonders of God known to other people by how we talk about them. You know, in, in, uh, as God was pointed to as deliverer over and over again, and you could mark this in your Bible, Moses calls God the deliverer in verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 11. Over and over again, Moses doesn't point to himself. He points to God. And that is a great lesson for us to know. Pointing to the good works of God. A third thing, and it's already one I've hinted at, is not feeling like you have to be the one to convince someone of anything. Of not being the one that has to prove all of the right answers. That's not something that's on your shoulders. Now I can tell you as someone who who you know, wanted to become a minister and headed off to ministry school, I kind of thought, you know, I knew enough about the Bible. Well, I did, but I didn't. I thought I knew enough about churches and programs, and I did, but I sure didn't have enough. What I thought I was going would be to learn the limits of my own ideas, the limits of the theologies and the philosophies of other religions, and I thought that would help strengthen me. But this burden of proving the Christian faith beyond a shadow of a doubt to someone else is not a burden that we are supposed to carry. We don't have to provide these airtight answers to prove that God is right. God will prove God's self. God is the one that is doing the amazing deeds. What that looks like for me, in my own fear, where if you're like me, you probably want to convince other people, what that challenges me to do is to allow for disbelief, to allow for other people to disagree with you. Now again, that's probably something you might need to sit with this week. to Think about, is it possible for us to allow other people to disagree with us and the world keep spinning. It's God's world. God can handle God's self. In this series, Trust is Greater Than Equal to Fear, this is really what we've been about. We have been pointing to the mighty acts of God. We've been trying to find a proper fear of God, an awe or respect of God, a reverence for God. Not a terror, but a reverence for God. And we've been doing so by telling these stories of the Israelite people, of Moses, and pointing out, as we could along the way, improper fears. Whenever leaders lead by fear and terror and intimidation, we've been pointing out those fears, even among the Hebrew people, and lifting them to our own attention to where we don't act in that same level of fear. We are people who follow Jesus. That's what we're about at First Christian. And we're always inviting others into that journey of following Jesus with us. Don't get the wrong idea that we have it all together or that we are all together on every one point, one and the same. That's just not the case. But we look to Jesus who, amazingly, 
as the Son of God, was not threatened. Did you ever see Jesus afraid? Did you ever see Jesus angry that someone didn't believe what he believed, where he was willing to chase them down the street and beat them up or hurt them or harm them in some way? Did we ever see Jesus in that kind of fear or uncertainty? No, because even Jesus allows for disbelief, allows for people to go their own way. As people who follow Jesus, we invite all of you, wherever you may be, into this journey of following Jesus. And let's go to God in prayer now. God, we're so thankful for your patience with us, your love of us. And we thank you for crazy stories like the son-in-law and father-in-law who get together after a long separation and who see how even though their gods have been different, their experiences have been the same, and they turn to you as the one God, the maker of heaven and earth. God, would you help each one of us in our journeys to come to know you more and more in our lives? Would you help us as we wrestle with you, as we bring questions to you, and as we show love to you and to our neighbor? We ask all this through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.